welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. On today's show, we're talking to Richard Barbrook. He's about to do some work with the Labour Party on digital democracy. Um, we wanted to talk to him all about digital democracy, about the current state of UK politics, the current state of the Labour Party, and we even got on to a little bit of cultural Marxism and the US political situation. If you enjoy the show, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, you can subscribe to us on YouTube or iTunes, and generally just spread the word about us. So let's get on with the interview. So, Richard, it is lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me. No problem. I was uh, intrigued to get to talk to you after I heard John McDonnell mention you in his uh, speech at the, the Fringe event. That I cannot remember the name of it. Momentum. The World Transformed. The World Transformed. Yeah, I know. It was, uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me, actually, because it was he, that this was the first day of teaching at uh, my university. So, actually, I wasn't at Labour Party that day um, and uh, the next morning I'm coming down so it's actually to the world transform uh, and suddenly my phone just goes off all these journalists are trying to get in contact with me because <laughs> it had taken like 12 hours to work out who Richard Barbrook was <laughs> um, and so I I talked to a few of them actually the other thing that's happened is I was walking towards the world transform to the venue and this Financial Times journalist suddenly jumps on me and drags me off to a pub <laughs> to talk to me. So yeah, so it, yeah, because I'm actually not officially yet working for the Labour Party, but uh, John McDonnell wants me to do various things to the Labour Leadership Office, which I've started doing. Okay. Uh, and so what he was mentioning is two things: is um, first is setting up a games uh, section for the Labour Party. We did a we did an app game during the election called Corbyn Run that got 2 million impressions and 600,000 downloads or something like that. So a, I mean, we were really surprised at how successful it was and delighted, of course, because it was a sort of, you know, it was a very last-minute thing. We just, you know, the SAP election, and it, we did, you know, it took us 10 days to get the team together, another three and, a half, three and a half weeks to make it, and then we had, like, two weeks to promote, promote, promote. So that was good. Um, and also what he was talking particularly at that meeting about was uh, doing wargaming the future, basically. I mean, friends of mine are involved in professional gaming, as it's called. So they do these sort of scenario planning, I guess you'd call it, um, for things like the military, the civil service, the city. And so what I, I suggested is getting them into to train, initially the treasury team. You know, we get in, we get into power... Um, and it's you know, the time between the, the ele- we win the election and say the, in the first budget and to deal with all the things like you know maybe we get in it when it's a hard Brexit so the country's in real problems or there's a run on the pound or there's capital flight and what you do is you go through these sort of uh, these sort of scenarios and work out what your responses would be and of course you can redo them and try different responses um, so that's one thing. Uh, and then the third thing, which he also talks about, is trying to do some digital democracy experiments. So to get the party membership involved directly in policy making, it would be really nice if we could uh, crowdsource the next Labour manifesto, or at least some of it, um, because we've got 550,000 members and they've got lots of ideas and knowledge and it would be good if they contributed them. So when, you know, when we say... We're you know, for the many, not the few. We also should be by the many, not the few as well. 
Well, the, the manifesto is definitely more democratically put together than the Conservative manifesto. But well, it wouldn't be very difficult. Well, yeah. Well, it was, yeah, but, it, you know, these were, you know, policies passed at conference and in policy forums, which, you know, are, more, yeah, are democratic, but, they're, you know, it's, it's has all the restrictions of uh, representative democracy. Hmm. So what? What? It, well, how much can you talk about what your what the digital democracy experiments you're? Well, there's two. There's two initial things we're looking at. One is to is to uh, try and get the party membership to decide a policy on universal basic income. So this is an idea that's been floating around obviously for decades, but has come back with a vengeance in the last few years. And interesting, both on the left and the right. So you get I know Peter Thiel, who's a Trump supporter saying we need it. And actually, I think Bill Gates has also come out in favour. You know, we have all this automation, so we give everybody a, the dole to keep them happy, basically, while we go off and make lots of money. <laughs> uh, the fact that I always say things they don't want to pay taxes either, I'm not sure who's going to be paying for the basic income. Yeah. Uh, so there's people on the right, and, obviously, and, and then obviously there are other people on the left, so Paul Mason is one of you know, the leading companies thinks that the universal basic income is a sort of precursor to communism. Um, so it, it, it's had a, and obviously it also has a lot of critics. I mean, obviously those people on the right who say, I mean, including on the Labour Party, who say basically, you're, you know, you're, you're giving people money to just laze around and sit at home smoking weed and watching their telly. Or there's other people who say you're subsidising poverty wages... Um, anyway, the UBI would be very low. So, so there's lots of arguments one way or the other. And, and since there's not an obvious left-right answer, this is one of the reasons why we picked it, actually. Okay. Uh, I mean, I personally, having gone through the benefit system in my 20s, you know, been between student, being a student and getting proper jobs, I, I, I have instinctively I'm in favour of UBI because it would save you a lot of emotional hassle of... Get, trying to get benefits out of the system, but on the other, I can see the the pertinence of the critique. So I'm I'm actually I'm sort of agnostic on it as well, which is one of the reasons I'm interested in running this particular experiment. Mm. There's a great new one come out called Universal Basic Services, where you get food, housing, and transport, and and, and internet for free, which is an alternative. So I mean, there's lots of other things. So this is as I said, it's not an obvious left right. Uh, split, so it's not going to be like Blairites versus Corbynistas. There's there's arguments on both sides, and so we're going to run it run probably around an economics conference. So what you do is you you open you basically announce that we're going to do this beforehand, um, make a little bit of put something on the Labour Party website with lots of information. I've been collecting links to put before and against arguments. Uh, probably do some introductory videos. Get somebody to write a little. You know, 500 words for each side um, and, and then get the membership to log on they've got all this information have a, have a public event where where it's debated in, as part of a, probably a conference either, probably early next year I should think now and then run a software called Polis P-O-L-I-S and this uses Twitter-like statements where people go yes, no, yes, no and it tries to form a consensus out of different opinions. It has to be quite carefully curated to make it work. Um, Audrey Tang, who was the digital digital minister in Taiwan, um, used this software to make an Uber law. 
This is very pertinent, of course, at the moment in London. Yeah. Uh, so you have these different stakeholders, and they would say, so you have like existing taxi drivers, people who want to be Uber drivers, people who are worried about safety, uh, which is obviously the key issue here, uh, environmentalists, and you you try and come to a consensus, which they can all... And they actually did manage to make a law using this software. Mm. What was... Did, did, well, what came of the law? It's in it's in Chinese, uh, <laughs> but they got the different groups to to come to. So this is a consensus building software. As I said, I've not used it with more than thirty people. So, and the problem there is to try and get something where people actually disagree. If thirty people, especially if they're all of one type of opinion, they all tend to group on one. So we're thinking of trying with this because they're obviously po- you know different positions for and again. I just try to see. I said, I don't know, you know, I've, I, I know it's worked in other circles, but we're going to see by running an experiment how far this software is useful. I know I've also had contacts with uh, people who are involved with the Lula campaign. So Lula wants to stand again for Brazilian president in the next year. Um, obviously, the right are trying to um, get him banned for alleged corruption. But assuming he runs... He's um, going wants to crowdsource his manifesto using this particular piece of software. So it's quite popular. We are we're going to try it out. The other piece of software we're interested in is one called Liquid Feedback. Um, this is a Berlin-based software. It was used by the Pirate Party. Now the SPD, the main German opposition party, about to use it for the SPD plus plus initiative. And this is slightly different. So. What it tends to do, it can make a good sense, but what it tends to do is polarise a debate into two opposing positions. It has this very neat way to, if you have like 15 you know, in favour of a proposition and with a large majority, and then a minority position, it will polarise into two, in the minority position and the majority position. Even if there's lots of it. So the trouble is often you get rankings over, say, I don't, let's take the example of UBI, where there are lots and lots of arguments in favour of UBI, and they will smother the, the anti-UBI, or vice versa. Okay. And what this does is tend to polarise it into two opposing positions. Okay. And then you, have, then you have a period of what is called consolidation. You have this debate period where you end up with two alternatives. Uh, I mean, sometimes you only end up with one, because everyone agrees, but we... We would, we would hope that to polarise them, to be honest, just to see whether you get... Then you have a period of reflection, then you have a vote. Okay. So that would be the other way of doing it. And so we just want to try that one out. Uh, we're discussing with Open Rights Group, ORG, about whether or not we could uh, crowdsource a digital bill of rights. So in the Digital Democracy Manifesto, which I coordinated for the second Jeremy for Leadership campaign... Um, uh, well, there's a promise in there to have a people's charter of digital liberties and again so you know take things like access or privacy and and try and see whether we and there's lots of existing bills of digital liberties and say, see if we can you know, have start with their clauses and see whether we can get people to improve them and to try and actually to try and force the debate and, and again, they, again it probably it seems I haven't actually tried this one out but I'm just interested in having read about it and seen the results of it, whether whether you know if we curate it, whether we can actually bring out the debate and see whether we can create two positions and get people to make choices. Mm-hmm. You know, should privacy be mainly aimed at the state 
or should we be more concerned about corporations? That sort of thing, you know, those are obvious types of things. Or access, what do we mean by access? Mm-hmm. You know, does everyone have the right to broadband Wi-Fi for free or not? <laughs> or something like that. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, um, or we could just do another version of the Digital Democracy Manifesto. I don't know. Again, that's something we're going to try. That sort. The third one is one uh, called Plaza Podemos, which is a bit like Reddit, actually. Uh, which they've been using in, as the name suggests, in Spain, which is based on, it's, again, it's a bit similar to liquid feedback, cause it, but it's based on what's called liquid democracy, where you essentially vote, you, you lend your vote to people. So you have, it's like a sort of hybrid of representative and direct democracy. Um, it's interesting because I, the, the critique I've had from both people who in Barcelona and in Madrid is it creates plebiscitary dictatorship. Because what you have is... So at the base level, they have lots of these sort of horizontalist, Occupy-style meetings mm. of Podemos. But the trouble is the leadership becomes a sort of uh, self-perpetuating dictatorship of stars. So you have, you know, Paul, you know Inglese, who's the leader, and famous academics and journalists and they essentially everything they say on this system gets voted to the top and it excludes those ordinary members or they all their function is is to clap the leadership mm-hmm. whereas actually i think this is exactly what you know jeremy corbyn and john mcdonald that's actually the very thing they want to avoid because actually the whole purpose of digital democracy is to is to actually give a voice to the rank and file mm-hmm. members mm-hmm. So that, re- but it works well, I'm told, on a local level where you don't have the stars and so. So what we're thinking of that is to run experiments at a local level. Say, so get a constituency Labour Party in a marginal, or a sort of Tory seat that all Labour ought to win, even though it's got quite a large majority. So I, you know, you know, my, I mean, a good example. My mother lives in in Folkestone, which. They had a Labour Party, but it was pretty small, and the local politics is dominated by the Tories and UKIP. But Labour has just won a council seat with a 26% swing, because it's suddenly got a lot of members. So it'd be good to actually try and run an experiment to see... Again, that might be not only Labour Party members, but also local supporters, about what, see if you could use it to generate a local manifesto. Uh, friends of mine in Madrid use this software very successfully for planning a city square. So you're thinking the plaza and you have all these different interest groups. Like There's a hotel in the square, there's cafes, there's people who walk their dogs, there's people who live nearby, you know, there's people who have offices, you know, all the different groups, you know, again, stakeholders to use that word for it. Um, and so they use this software to actually make a plan for the square which everyone agreed on. So again, and that was because there was no obvious person that everybody would lend their vote to. No charismatic leaders for that discussion. Mm. So that's again what we're thinking of just trying that out. And I don't I don't think any of these softwares in themselves is perfect or is a magic solution. Um, but they're very interesting and you know it's by experimenting we'll find out what the pluses and minuses are. Mm. I should explain that I being an elder, <laughs> I think as we're now called, um, I I was involved in pirate and community radio in the 1980s. In fact, that's how I first really, the first time I ever worked with John McDonnell uh, at the Greater London Council at GLC. 
uh, where we were trying to do community radio. So we wanted to make some form of what we used to call the electronic agora, based on the French, the uh, agora électronique. Yeah, yeah. So you, so, so, so using you know, analog radio technologies to sort of supplement or deepen representative democracy. And now, of course, we've got network digital technology, digital mm-hmm. network technology, but. You know, I think one thing is having this long experience of this is I'm aware that the technology in and of itself is not going to solve the problem. But you could they are good, but the flip side of it is not to just dismiss the technology or see it as all, you know, a NSA, CIA plot to survey us or Google and Facebook to control the world. So you can hack the technology. I think Facebook's inability to deal with the the Russian situation right now is proof that they don't have that sort of power. The imaginary Russian situation. I got denounced, you know, as an agent of uh, Russia. Oh, really? Oh, they produced this list. Did you appear at some point on Russia Today? Is that that where they got you? Yeah. Just like Boris Johnson's dad? Yeah, Ashton, Sarney's going underground. Actually, to talk about digital liberties, which I think is the funniest thing of all. Um... You know, I don't see any worse appearing on Putin's propaganda channel than Theresa May's propaganda <laughs> to be honest. Um, is that Laura Kunzberg's uh, talk yeah. show, is it? <laughs> or Andrew Neil or something like that. Well, Andrew Neil, to be fair, grilled Liz Truss the other day on the on the Universal Credit head, what helpline. He didn't he didn't let her away with it. So. Okay. okay, he probably knows which way the wind is blowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I just thought that was quite funny, really. Uh, I, I mean, they, you know, I've, I've, I, I do interviews with people. I mean, you know, I do interviews with the Financial Times, and I say, well, is it worth doing it with RT? But they, but it's obviously sort of red baiting, except they're not red anymore, are they? No. Um, well, I was, I was listening to a thing the other day that was talking about how Russia today has such a small reach. Mm. And their most watched or or read content has nothing to do with Russian like attempts to influence foreign policy or Russia's outlooks on the world. It's it's often just like interviews you wouldn't get yeah. on on other sites. And the the only people paying close enough attention to it are people Nick Cowan who who, <laughs> who who get wound up and aren't going to be influenced by it. Well, of course. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I said, I, 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 my, it was, it my, it's very popular among my students because, it, again, as you said, it gives puts on on people who are on the BBC. Yeah, I mean, both on the left and the right. I mean, so you'll have, you know, alternative for the, the alternative for Germany people there and the linker. You know, so the people who the, the BBC has got a narrow, such a narrow view of who's allowed on there. Uh, that it's not surprising people watch RT, mm-hmm. you know, because it's just got a wider range of guests. I mean, given how cheaply they make it, it's incredible actually how much audience it does. But I would encourage people to watch uh, as many different news broadcasts as possible. Yeah, well, as long as you're uh, as long as you're aware of where something is yeah. coming from, there's there's yeah. never a yeah. you know as, as long as you're not watching something on, and you're thinking oh it's on on screen or oh, they look professional they must they mustn't have an agenda. They must. Well, got, <laughs> I mean, the idea that somehow the BBC or the Guardian or the Times or Sky they don't have agendas that's the bit I think is really funny. Somehow the West tells the truth and the evil Ruskies tell lies. I mean, this is just nonsense, you know. It's funny because that's, that's actually something that has changed my life. So when I was at university as an undergraduate in the late 1970s, 
that people thought I was a real weirdo for saying the BBC is the British establishment's lying machine. <laughs> and now it's just, it's absolutely mainstream. Most people think that. Yeah, well, I remember one of the like most vivid memories I have of doing of doing history mm. in school. I must have been like 13 or 14. Mm. And we were talking about sources and our teacher put on a BBC report about an IRA bombing. Mm. And it was at that point that he, he then started pointing out what was wrong, what they were missing, what they weren't showing. And I was like, oh, the BBC are biased. The BBC have an agenda. And it was like this watershed moment where I was like, trust yeah. nobody. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, I had my parents, I mean, particularly my father being right-wing Labour, loved them. They thought the BBC was wonderful. Because it sort of reinforced his sort of you know, left liberal or whatever you call it, you know, right-wing Labour view of the world. Mm. They were they were not, they were sociologically and ideologically close to him, the sort of people who had. But, you know, again, as you say, it's like growing up, realising, why is a lying bastard lying? <laughs> and certainly if you went to the 1980s, I did the Labour left, I mean, they were appalling. <laughs> I mean, the famous example being uh, the all, Battle of Orgreave, where, well, I knew, I mean, I knew miners who were there, and they just, you know, the, they, they went to protest against this... Where, strike breaking going on and the police attack them and then of course being minors they fall back and then the BBC just reversed the footage you know that was that, I mean, that was that was propaganda that was fabrication mm-hmm. they deny it of course but oh it's just a mistake yeah yeah <laughs> so, if you, you believe, can't see my wry smile here but <laughs> yeah, I, I mean as you say that and the war in Ireland is, I mean that was another place well, you, as I said, you don't have to support the Republican movement to know that they were they were telling you the facts. They were whipping up one. They were they were cheerleading for one side against the other, yeah. which actually was harmful to the interest of Britain. Actually, I would have said in that in that particular conflict because it perpetuated it much longer than it needed to be. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's not to say that outlets like the BBC or or any mainstream outlet or any, any outlet in general is that, that there's very rarely no good work being done by someone there. Well, I, that, I, I'm very happy to pay the licence fee to get CBBs. <laughs> but they do, they, <laughs> I have they, a four-year-old The BBC CB, do some CB, fantastic CBBs documentaries, yeah, like yeah. Louis, Louis Theroux. Like if I, if, yeah. if I was to pay a licence fee just to get Louis Theroux, I'd be, I'd be happy. But they... they they do have a lot of, of really, really excellent um, documentary programming. and but Their history does tend to be obsessed with kings and queens. Well, that's true. <laughs> but it's the same as anything. You've just got to take, the, take it with a... This is the lens they're looking at. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I used to work for, in the 1980s with people from Solidarność in Poland um, who obviously were well-trained at looking at the news and deciphering what it, what they were trying to avoid telling you or uh, trying to see through the ideological split. But what horrified them about Britain then is a number of people who thought the BBC News was unbiased. I mean, they, they preferred it, obviously, the Polish Stalinist media, but they just thought this was incredible. And I said, well, that just shows you it's much more effective propaganda mm-hmm. because it's got enough variety in it to make it look like it's it's neutral, mm. but actually that makes it spin its spin towards the establishment more effective. Yeah, and, so, and you can see that with their horror about Jeremy Corbyn getting elected and oh, re-elected, yeah. and then doing really well in the election. They still they still were spluttering about it. I think the best reaction I have seen 
was from the it was either the Telegraph or the Daily Mail, and the the headline just just abandoning all sort of pretense of, of objectivity. It was like the momentum is now with Jeremy Corbyn. We have to stop him as the front page, and I was like. <laughs> Look, come on, like, try a little bit harder to pretend you're not. Well, they are, <laughs> yeah, but it's the Tory graph, so you'd expect it as a part, you know, you wouldn't expect socialist workers to, to be very one-sided. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, but the BBC, you know, claims to be balanced and impartial and neutral, and that, I just think, is laughable. And, and I said, that the thing about the old RT thing, which actually, I'm now, I have a yellow line through it, because I'm supposedly, you know, an, an agent... I'm somehow important in some sense, though I don't know why, uh, given this humble group. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, you know, the idea that uh, you know, a, heart, you know, a sort of quarter an hour interview with, with, the, this, with the Russian international channel is somehow going to change people's minds, it's just laughable. Yeah. I mean, the sustained propaganda from the BBC has been over the years. I mean, but what's interesting, I think, now is, is the plethora of alternative sources of information. Um, you know, you know Scorebox, Canary, Evolve Politics, Vox Politica, Another Angry Voice, Tom Pride. I mean, there were all these little websites. Some of them were just fan- basically like, you know, webzines, mm. blogs, actually. And Most Angry of them only popped up in the last 24 months. Well, the reason they popped up is because the mainstream media wasn't reflecting what a large numbers of people thought. Mm. I mean, another angry voice had the top two most shared articles in the election, beating, you know, all these mainstream media. Yeah. I mean, by a lot as well. He had, uh, as this is like one guy in Yorkshire, you know, making around you know, nice little visuals, which which you could, when you share it on Facebook, it comes up with a nice little visual. And then his... You know, either analysis or even better, rant against the Tories, Brexit, or whatever else. It doesn't I was told. I don't. I mean, I don't know him, but I was told by somebody who who does that during the election, people were going round and cooking him dinner to keep him on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, I assume he, there must be people support feeding him and keep paying the rent. But I mean, you know, you know fair juice to the guy. Of course, now he's being denounced as fake news. Uh, Nick Robinson was speaking at my university, Westminster, recently, where he claimed all the... Mr. Impartial. Oh, yes, the member of... Wasn't he the (laughs) Oxford Cambridge Students' Union or something? Yeah, the Conservative... He pointed the Conservative Youth Group, I think it was Macclesfield or not? I thought it was Oxford, wasn't it? As well, there's a couple of different... Oh, he's he's a a multiple offender. Yeah. Uh, but he, but yeah, you know, and he was blaming, you know, I don't know, the canary for the murder of Joe Cox. Oh, something. I saw that. That was pathetic. And then you got the same Jonathan Friedland, this poor woman who got blown up in Malta doing the same thing. So you can see they're really, really scared because, they, again, they, you know, they live, they, as they say, they, live, they go on on about filter bubbles, but they're the biggest filter bubble of them all. You know, they're all, you know, it's not just that they all went to posh schools and posh universities and all, you know, they'll all know each other and go to dinner parties and go drinking with each other and probably sleep with each other as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can see, we, when we launched the Digital Democracy Manifesto two years ago, it was really, well, it was a year ago, actually, I think, or two years, a year ago, it was really interesting because they, 
they so Jeremy and I and uh, and uh, Amy Pascoe was speaking. They were all they were in this little venue. And they were all in the front, and it was like a pack. They were all different packs, and it didn't matter whether they were the BBC or the Sun. They were all the same, and they all knew each other, and they all basically took the same line to mock Jeremy. I mean, you know, we were pleased because we got through to our intended audience of techies, but. You know, you could see that 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 you know, they have much more in common than they do with a lot of the population, and that's their problem. And what, they, what horrifies them is when suddenly they realise, as Guidable would say, they're just a, 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 a univocal monologue about themselves. <laughs> yeah, one thing I do always like to to say about um, sort of that 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 sort of journalistic establishment is that. No one is ever the villain of their own story, and they 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 truly, I think, believe oh, yeah. what they're putting out. Oh, there. best propaganda! Like I, I don't because I, I think a lot of people have this this like image built up in their head of of like the people sat around the table being like, right, how can we make the poor miserable and how? And it's it's I feel like it's more a a self perpetuating thing where they've grown up where neoliberalism if you want to put it like that is the ideology this is the the, the ground this is the fertile ground this is how the economy is supposed to work this is how politics is supposed mm. to work this is how society is supposed to work and that that's just their but it's not an ideology construct. it's not an ideology for them it's it's uh, it's the only way of thinking it's a it's a common sense yeah and then when people come along and point out that it doesn't work they do think it's ludicrous yeah it's ludicrous it, it's intellectually vapid they get really threatened because they suddenly realise that everything that they think is important isn't and the fact that large numbers of people millions as it proved agree with this proposition is for them very worrying and of course then they have to blame the Russians or you know the Canary or Swarp I mean they've got to blame someone else other than the fact that most people through their life experience, knows that neoliberalism has reached its limits, not just economically, but socially, politically, environmentally. And we need some radical change, otherwise things really are going to get bad. Yeah, yeah the sort of level of wealth inequality is, is just scary when you look at the... And, and then there's people sleeping on the streets in one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not as bad as America. I mean, that yeah, no, I, I do... But they're getting, you know, they're, they're trying to work up to that level. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the punishing the poor deliberately, but they think they're doing them good, you know, by punishing them, you know, you know getting them into jobs. Incentivising people. Incentivising. Well, they're going to get, now they're not going to get any foreign labour from, from you know, Latvia and Poland and Romania and Bulgaria. They want to, they're going to have to mobilise, you know, conscript them into picking fruit or something. <laughs> um... I know it's uh, it's it's interesting that about about the way that the as you say it's a sort of, it's a sort of it's a class bubble you know they don't know anybody outside their own group so you know something you know when the, the fact that you know large numbers of people in the country think differently from them they find a bit of a shock I mean, it's interesting that they find it easier that people to be on to the right of them than to the left of them. So they find fascists or ukippers or mad Brexiters. They can sort of understand that. That's like their crazy uncle or aunt, you know, because they're nice. Basically, they're nice Tory 
they're nice Tories, and then there's a more you know drunk drunken uncle Tory. Yeah, but what they found really difficult is lefties, because lefties are somehow oh we might have gone through it for a, you know a month at university, but then we grew up, and then suddenly they think oh shit they're going to come to power. Yeah, well, what was it Corbyn got um, the second highest vote total since the Second World War for a Labour Prime Minister? Uh, in terms of like sheer number of votes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's all a bit difficult because the electorate changes. Well, yeah, I mean, and the I mean, population grows. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but it's basically the yeah, it's one of the best results since ninety. Basically, it's the nineteen ninety seven election and the nineteen forty five election. It's I mean, the thing is, of course, the UKIP vote collapsed into the Tory vote, so they also did pretty well. You know, given there'd been seven years of austerity. Yeah. But the fact that the fact that it, that we managed to deprive them of their majority was a real achievement. Especially as he said, you know, we, we were fighting not just the Tories, but um, shall we say a large group inside our own party. Yeah. Well, I, to be honest, it, it really gives me a little bit of hope to see to on when I was in I was in Canada when on election mm-hmm. night and um, I was able to stay up and watch watch the results all night essentially because I was about, I was five hours ahead. Yeah. Um, or sorry, five hours behind. And having watched Bernie Sanders' campaign in America gain so much momentum and get so close and then just fall short and kind of not dissipate because he's really kept up his momentum in in a way that I didn't even honestly believe was quite possible at the time. But uh, it was really... you didn't quite get there, you know. You felt like hope was kind of gone, and it's, well, because, it's nice to see. Well, because the because the Democratic Party preferred to lose to Trump than win with Bernie. Yeah, I was told by this guy Josh in nineteen twenty fifteen, uh, November twenty fifteen. He said he was either either Trump or Bernie. He came comes oh, from Kansas. This guy came from Kansas. He was he lived in a trailer park when he was a. Uh, a teenager, I think he was an academic when I was always a student, but and he said he just said there's no way the white working class anyway was going to vote for the Clintons after what they'd done to them, yeah. and it, they and it, you know and all this okay there's also, obviously there's a big white racist vote, but a lot of it was just a protest vote against NAFTA and being shafted by, and also the fact that Obama didn't deliver. People forget that you know he came. Well, he struggled because of the, oh, no, he the Republican tr- Congress. He didn't, no, he didn't try. Well, I would I would dispute that in that there was yeah I agree there are things no, no, to try on, but there are, there's a lot no, of legislation no, that went to Congress no, and got to, just to, got stonewalled by the no, Republicans. No, there was the Dream that, Act. There was no, more infrastructure bills. There was um, improvements on Obamacare. He, he had two years where he controlled Congress. He waste, well, he didn't waste all. No, he didn't want, care, but, but he didn't want to. He didn't want to change things. He, think, he got Larry Summers to <laughs> point his. You know, he, look at the people he had. Bob Room. It was you know he. City, oh, a lot of it. City Corps appointed his first cabinet, so he was just a Wall Street puppet. You know? Yeah, no, I do agree with you there. It was there was a lot of establishment Republicans and Democrats in that cabinet in a way that there probably shouldn't have been given the the type of rhetoric that he was using on the campaign trail but I still think it, overall he was he was a I think a pretty decent president in my mind anyway given given what he had to deal with but African Americans ended up with the, after eight years of the first black president worse off 
Yeah, there was something I was listening to the other day talking about how because of because of who he was, it meant he could be much more conservative on social issues yeah. than he maybe would, than than a white person might have got away with. Yeah. But anyway, to to come back to to Britain, well, that, I mean, uh, that's what you know. That's what we got to learn from. You know, you know, you, it's not just um, it's not just getting elected, but it's once you're in power, how do you ensure the 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 people you know the, that you work in not just on behalf of the people but the the people can actually participate in power mm. you know you, you know because you I, there's a great book called the new machiavelli by jonathan powell who was blair's chief of staff uh, and it's a you know i mean there's funny things like he doesn't realize the prince is a satire he thinks it's a serious uh, book in that way um but it, but you know you see that there's a small group of people um, some of whom are pretty talented, some of whom are pretty naive, in my view, and all they think they can wheel a dealer than their a new, you know, their way through power. But they end up being absorbed by the establishment. I mean, partly because they didn't want to change anything, but it's also that you know, if it's just replacing one small group with another small group isn't even if they've got better policies in certain areas, isn't really a solution to what's the crisis we're facing. Uh, you know, there's no, it's what John McDonald says, there's no way a few hundred Labour MPs or even tens of thousands of activists can make a decision. What you need to have is millions of people wanting to change things. And then they're irresistible. Then they're like apartheid collapsed or the end of Stalinism in Eastern Europe. Or So if lots of people are determined that things will get better, <laughs> really, rather than just rhetorically, that they want change, proper change. They've got to be involved in the process. And, uh, you know, so Jeremy and John, you know, they come out of this experience of the GLC, the Greater London Council, where, you know, we got elected in 1981 on a left-wing platform and just kept moving leftwards until Thatcher abolished the council because she couldn't win the next election for it. And one of the reasons why it was so popular is it because it included people in the policymaking. So John McDonald's always a great example of this is there wasn't a lesbian and gay counsellor in the group. But they knew that homophobia was wrong because it was dividing the working class. So they rang up gay switchboard and said, what should we do? What policies should we adopt? And obviously then they had meetings, they got people in, and they got, you know, set up consultation and started doing these policies, which were incredibly innovative. And we got absolutely monstered by the Tory media, you know, we were buggers and paedophiles and all the usual That's smack. Yeah, and then 30 years later the Tory party passed a gay marriage act. Yeah, oh, it is ironic because obviously leading members of Thatcher's government were incredibly gay. Well, Teddy, I was thinking Well, that that's true. I was also thinking Norman St. John Stevens, for instance. Th- Thatcher's friendship with Nicholas Savile and Nicholas Fairburn yeah. and all these other people who have various allegations against them. Yeah, so, but that doesn't matter. I mean, that well, was just no. pro- it's propaganda, you know, in, in a way, you know, because they're, they're hypocrites. But the key thing is that in this story, not that they smeared us by, and were hypocritical, that's not really the important one. The important story is how do we counter that whilst by mobilising people behind the agenda. And obviously, we, you know, again, it's interesting with something like homophobia. Lots of people in the 80s, not so much now, obviously, were... To, you know, they, by their default setting would be homophobia until you said to them, well, but your, you know, your cousin is gay. Your aunt is a lesbian. 
And if you actually brought it out, you know, it's like why you know gay people used to go on about coming out because everybody came out. They would suddenly realise they were bloody ludicrous. That it was because everybody had some gay relative somewhere, lesbian relative, or friends or something. And there's one thing it's sort of having you know ha- ha- having homophobia against some abstract people you don't. But if they're your relatives. Or your friends, suddenly the person you see in the corner of the street every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, then it just drops. You know, then it, it's like with immigrants, isn't it? Like the most racist parts of Britain, the ones we have the least immigrants. That does make me laugh a lot. Yeah, because they don't know anybody. Everybody's like, well, whereas you know, going to London and everybody, you know, it's like this because it's a very and has been for centuries a multicultural, multilingual city. Obviously, there race there is racism in in London. You come across it all the time if you can't tell you when we were canvassing it was interesting uh, but often it's racism between different immigrant groups <laughs> <laughs> um, you know all these bloody foreigners are coming over here who can't speak English so some, somebody who's obviously from the Caribbean yeah. <laughs> um, you know um, so there's that sort of so that it's that sort of thing that is actually to get make people understand that the prejudices often which they're picking up from the mainstream media are actually ludicrous, but you have to actually do something about it. And I think it's it's a more general thing, you know. If again, I mean, I'll just quote John McDonnell where he says, uh, you know, he said, if you want to work out how the best way to run the railways, you don't get many management consultants. You ask the people who drive the trains and lay the track and clean the carriages and sell the tickets and so on. They're the people who have run railway because they're running the bloody railway at the moment. Yeah. And they're not they're not taking a ten percent cut of all the cuts they make either. No, and also <laughs> also again, we f- people forget that you know that this isn't some they're not some uneducated peasants. These people they're often very uh, they are they you know they've all been to school and some of them been to universities. They've read lots of books. Yeah, but they're they're working and, on it every and, day. And exactly. And so they so they even have you know I'm just saying they have the abstract knowledge as well as the practical. And the thing is, is to mobilise that talent and uh, and creativity in a way because neo- neoliberalism, what neoliberalism has done, is okay. It was on about individual freedom and choice. Actually, what it does is atomise people and make them feel powerless. And so, in one of the ways, it seems to me, you've got to change society so people feel like they can can contribute. Because in a way, there's a lot of wastage in this society because. People are not allowed to participate and add their ideas and suggest better ways of doing things. So stupid things are done, you know, because the knowledge base... Again, it comes back to this idea if it's a small group, you know, replacing one clique with another clique. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that, because even if they were the... You know, even if the next Labour government was controlled, you know, was run by the most brilliant minds in the country, it, it can't be as clever as... The large part of the population. So it's not just, I say, it's just not for the many, but it's got to be by the many, of the many. Actually, it's like Abraham Lincoln, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a very, you know, the government of the people, for the people, by the people. Yeah. And I think this, you know, the, you know, this is, you know, he's celebrating the great victory of the Union Army over the slave, the slave owners. And that was the citizen army, you know, and that they, they, you know, the citizens actually went out there on the battlefield, took on the slave owners, and whipped their asses. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's how we've got, you know, you've got, okay, we're not going to have, you know, what we need to do is just get people involved directly in running 
the things that they're, which they're involved in in their lives. And I can't see how it could be administered, managed worse than the existing institutions. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. My mum's a nurse, so I get to oh. hear endlessly about the state of the NHS. And, and it's, it's managers, you know, if you, got, if you got rid of most of the managers, the place would run ten times. The matrons on each ward used to run each ward sort of almost individually. And they obviously, and they knew how the ward would run, and they, could, you know, and between them, they informally did lots of things, which now have been put onto a computer system and a spreadsheet. So they they never waste a huge amount of time filling out forms instead of actually looking after patients. But it's everywhere. I mean, university, uh, you know, the police. You know, you talk to police. I mean, I had a student last year who was a policeman. And he said, uh, they, he said that they were actually trying to avoid arresting people for some crimes because the paperwork was for minor. In Durham, they stopped prosecuting marijuana offences, and there's a couple of other things, but that was more on the principle of I was being always, ridiculous. But well, they um, yeah. Well, this guy said that he said the first he said he said to me when I was he, I, you know Jeremy got elected, and he did say the one thing you could do to make police happy is is legalise marijuana, not because they want to smoke dope themselves. I assume some of them do. But they just think it's a complete waste of time where they arrest some guy, uh, find it, find them, and then they have to go back out on the street and and deal even more weed to pay the fine. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like with the laws against prostitution. So whatever you think about prostitution, criminalising the prostitutes is not the solution. No, no, no. And, and the same thing, you know, you might. Well, no, anyway, the Green Party got a lot of flack for suggesting that it should be decriminalised. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what I mean, an outrageous suggestion! Don't prosecute people for doing things that they want to do. Well, it's also interesting. It's also interesting to do. It's also interesting, you know, the way it's changed as soon as the Americans started legalizing weed. And again, it shows that complete subservience. I mean, marijuana wasn't illegal in this country until the Americans made it illegal, and we copied them yeah. in the nineteen twenties. And now, suddenly, now the Americans are legalizing marijuana. Suddenly, surprise, surprise, large numbers of British politicians think it's a good idea. So this is a none, real... None of the current, current government, unfortunately. <laughs> Not yet. But, you know, they, they're, they're desperate for the youth vote, so it's exactly the sort of thing I think they would do. And it's cheap. You yeah, can the, save money, actually. Those are good. The Adam Smith Institute proposed, like, um, a millennial manifesto. I don't know if you saw it, but it involved legalising... It involved, like, illegalising uh, weed ecstasy, cocaine, and lowering flight duties for under 30 so they could go to Ibiza cheaper. All right. <laughs> this was like their proposal for what the Conservative Party should do. But They've always been a bit idiosyncratic. They're, they're so-called libertarians. Yeah. When I was teaching in, doing, actually doing my doctorate in Kenya University in the mid-1980s, so mid there was this guy called Mark Henry... Glenn Denning, who was the Libertarian Alliance, so he came down to speak. And so I had all these students who were like lefty, some of them in the SWP, and they all turned up to heckle him. And all these rugby clubbers, basically conservatives at Kenya University, <laughs> turned up to cheer him. And so he was, you know, terrible on the NHS and trade unions, but he was like pro gay, pro drugs, uh, pro. Feminism. I mean, all these, and they ended up with the lefts, my lefty students, having to protect him from the rugby club who wanted to beat him up. And then they took, they personally took him out for a drink, and then guy took him down to the railway train and made sure he got safely back to London. And I thought that was really interesting because socially, culturally, 
they they were completely the same. It was just on t- it was just on the economy. That strange thing about ne- I mean, it's more obvious now about neoliberalism, where you know you can be you know have a sex change and still be a Republican like that. So, Jen, was it the Kardashian K- guy? K- Caitlyn Jenner? Yeah, yes, Caitlyn Jenner. So that's a really classic example of it. You know, it's an individual. She's, she's not pro gay marriage either, which I find funny, but it also highlights the kind of not ludicrous nature of, but the having the LGBT vote as one vote in people's mind, I always think is is crazy because there's a lot of very good critiques coming out now of identity <laughs> politics in America from the left. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you read Viewpoint magazine or. Jacobin or oh, well, we had, uh, we had Cha- uh, Chapo Trap House or the, the dirtbag left as I love to call themselves yeah, well, we had. I mean I'm not surprised because you know it, it's it, you know it's, it's, very, it's very liberal isn't it it's all like uh, it's so, not that's the, that's a lot of people's problems with it is that they see it as neo-Marxism in that they're the cultural Marxism yeah cultural Marxism in that they're that we had uh, our, our most listened to episode was with a professor from um, Ever Evergreen University, or um, it's a great name. Where's that? Uh, Nevada, somewhere in the middle of the map. Somewhere, maybe it's not Nevada. I should know this. We interviewed him <laughs> somewhere, some, some, somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah, but anyway, the heartland. But his uh, this guy Brett Weinstein, who he's a, a fantastic, brilliant guy. Um, really, really, and he said really he made a joke in class. No, it wasn't even that. So they had a day of absence where. For, for years um, based on this book where um, black people didn't come in to work for to, for a day it was like set in the 40s or whatever it was what, like, like, like what, the, what you mean like like the cleaners kind of yeah so all, all the black people didn't arrive in this town in the morning and all the white people had no idea what to do because it was all the lower class jobs because it was yeah, in yeah, the yeah, 40s yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I, re- I, I remember my, <coughs> my father had spent a summer in Princeton some some academic thing there. And it was in, in the morning, there's a, this is Princeton University being one of these Ivy League places. And then in the morning, seeing the buses coming in, bringing all the work, black work, basically black and Latino work from a nearby town. Mm. And, you know, and so the faculty and the students are overwhelmingly white. I assume they still are. Uh, and the and the people who do all the menial jobs are surprise surprise of a different colour. But the, I think. You know what's interesting about it, the critique is is saying well it's about you know what they're doing is hiding class politics and obviously the, the working class in America particularly is divided by race and it has been for centuries. Um, but that, the Trump supporters and the Bernie supporters had realised that they were so close to wanting the same thing. Like it, when when I read Bernie's book, I was just well that's what this guy just just said. You know he said it was Bernie or Trump. You know yeah. and something you had to. I mean, you know, in a sense, it was a false result. But, you know, the idea, you know, there's this sort of idea of white privilege. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's some poor, you know, poor whites in America who are you know, dying of opioids. And, oh, but, I, I mean, what privilege do they have? I mean, you know, there's large parts of America where white people are in a really, really bad condition. Well, I guess a lot of the argument is kind of that um, almost to kill a mockingbird, yes, one. You, see, you know, you scrub hard enough, you get down to... Everyone's black. <laughs> well, especially in the South, isn't it? I mean, everyone—they all, all be, you know, the, the idea that anyone is pure white or pure black is no. a bit of a joke, really, but, given the history of the area. Um, yeah. But, but I, what I think is interesting about that is, you know, the original critique of someone like W. E. B. Du Bois and, and people who put this forward 
was actually that white privilege doesn't just harm people of colour, it harms white people. That's the point he's making in Black Reconstruction, that Mm -hmm. there was this moment after the American Civil War where, you know, poor whites and poor blacks had a common interest against the old ruling elite, the the plantocracy in the South, Mm -hmm. and racism was used to divide and rule them, and they both lost out to it. Okay, maybe, you know, you come from Northern Ireland, hey, you know all about this, you know, you divide and rule. You know, if you go to West, you know, I went to West Belfast many years ago, and you couldn't really tell any difference between the nationalist ghettos and the unionist ghettos. No, there is. They're like a, the only difference is the flag flying outside their house. Yeah, exactly. And so they uh, and okay, yes, if you were a unionist, maybe you got a slightly better job and you had more child value, and they had certain. Yeah, well, there were certain certain companies wouldn't hire the Catholics. Exactly. So there was like certain housing benefits not being afforded well, to exactly, them. Exactly, exactly. So there was, you know, there was some. You could see there were some unionist privilege, but actually, overall, it meant that both communities suffered because if they united against the ascendancy in the north they would be in a much better condition all of them you know and partly right up to now actually you can see there's a problem yeah. you know you know as long as there's there's large walls between them they're not going to unite against the people above them and uh, and so i think it's interesting the way that something like white privilege is actually has a hundred percent different meaning for what it originally was was thought of mm-hmm. by people who originally put this forward, but that's because they were Marxists and lots of these identity politics people, though they might claim, you know, or they claim to be cultural Marxists, as far as I can see, they've never read a word of Marx in their entire <laughs> life. Or if they have, they've read it through the filter of cultural studies, Stuart Hall or Adorno, who aren't Marxists in my mm. view, to be honest. Um, we used to say in the 1980s, uh, the Labour left, one of the Labour left slogans was cultural studies, it is the class enemy. Because they were, because, you know, so the GLC was very strong on fighting racism, sexism, heterosexualism, disabledism, because we wanted to unite the working class around a common project. And it's interesting, when we did surveys of people in London, you know, gay people were really grateful that we'd stood up and said respect our gay brothers and lesbian sisters. But the, the, what their major concern was was like everyone else. It was housing, you know, employment, transport, healthcare. And so it wasn't like a substitute for class issues. It was something that had to be combined with it. And you can see, you know, if you want to change America, obviously you have to fight racism. I mean, you know, you're a young black male, you're going to get gunned down the streets by police or gangsters. There's a very good chance of this. So it isn't that yes. black lives do matter and it's important. But, you know, the way you solve the underlying problems of America is actually to deal with the rather vicious form of capitalism that's there, as Bernie points out. Yeah, you know, well, now, the, 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 but this is the issue that, that never got mentioned in the debates. Like, Trump, Trump had his economic message, and that was front and centre. But Clinton, the identity politics was... A substitute for economics. Yeah, it was. It's it's almost like a distraction. But the thing with it, it is a distraction. Right? I think it's exactly what it is. It's you know, they're liberals. You know, liberals don't want class politics. They class. We're all beyond that. You know, that was that's that's all the past. It's Fordism. It's you know, we're now at the end of history. Ideology doesn't matter. It's just competing interest groups. You know. And you just form a coalition. I mean, you know, Blair was the same. I mean, it's not an accident that people like Stuart Hall were the theorists of Blair. You know, that, it's interesting now his, uh, his sort of academic admirers just airbrushed this out of the story. You know, he was involved in this group called Marxism Today, a laughable title. 
and they attack the Labour left. They said, "Oh, you know, you like, you know, you support the miners and you support trade unionists, and they're all you know horrible, stinky males and sexists and heterosexists." And but we're going to have all these little community, and it's you know, it's very much the professional middle class, basically. And let's jump the mass of the working class. And it's that little class fraction they build. And the Blair, and it's not surprising the Blairites took it over. And yeah, you know, that's what you do. You go, oh, you know, we're going to have Blair, you know, lots more women, and we're going to be nice to gays. But actually, remove the class politics which has to be associated with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, to, to, to go back to that. End of rant. Yeah, to go back to that little. <laughs> where we started there the thing with Brett Weinstein happened was the day of absence and then they suggested that it was either last year or this year that they weren't going to have a day of absence that white all white students and faculty weren't going to be allowed to come to the class be and he to went hang on that's that's different that's that's very different and then just got threatened there was protests he was like forced but, 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 but that but isn't he on the isn't that the wrong way round anyway? Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. It's, 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 it's denying the whole. It's denying the whole point of the protest. Yeah, and but this, I, this is the this is the scary. This was the scary part for me that because I I heard people talking about the you know the sort the, the the problems with like social justice warriors and I'd heard Jordan Peterson sort of talk briefly about the the dangers of of you know postmodernists and and you know cultural Marxists. Cultural studies, it is the class enemy. Yeah, and should, I think we should. I'm going to get a T-shirt. Get a t-shirt with that. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get them just paint. <laughs> I'd, I'd be, I'd be cool with that. I'd, I'd wear that. <laughs> it's interesting because I know Angela Nagel, who wrote this brilliant book called "Kill All Normies" about the alt right and their and the internet, basically. The Kekistanis. Yeah, Kekistan. I mean, it's really, really good. So most of it's about that, and she, but she has one chapter in it where she pointed out that this sort of social justice warrior political correctness was actually encouraging these people. These people were using this. And, oh, then, yeah. and actually they're a form of identity politics. Oh, yeah, it's, it's quite 100% a reaction to it. Yeah, yeah, the... yeah. And also that they, if you go around having identity politics, it allows Nazis to say, well, we've got identity politics as well. Uh, actually got absolutely monstered. Something which actually, I think, don't think that she thought was very controversial. And certainly when I read the book, I just thought, well, I quite enjoyed it because she was taking the pee out of people I don't particularly like. <laughs> but I didn't think that it was particularly controversial. But it obviously hit a raw nerve on large parts of the, especially American land. Yeah. Because, and she was a bit stunned by it, actually. I think, you know, she, uh, I noticed that she adopted the Irish spelling of her name on the Facebook. Uh, uh, so she wasn't as easy to find. But I think what it was also, because a lot of people, it's, um, to use Pierre Bourdieu's phrase, it's their cultural capital. You know, you know, you can, you know, you, you become a sort of self-appointed spokesperson for some micro-community. You know, because again, again, it's interesting. Then the, this sort of politics doesn't have like the Labour Party, where you have formal structures. You know, it's all like the, it's all what uh, Joe Frim called tyranny of structures. So you end up with this star system. So people who get, you know, get access to the media, uh, get funding from foundations, get uh, academic jobs, or just can shout them out. Is they become the, the self-appointed leaders of the movement, and therefore they have a you know what they have a vital interest in being a big fish in a small pond, and obviously monstering anybody who's a threat to them. 
and you see this actually it's interesting it's, I mean again it seems to be much worse in America than here and I think the good thing about the Labour the whole revival of Labour left is that everybody has to sort of get together in one project yeah. and it becomes more difficult to do so you know, we've seen this with poor old Clive Lewis just making a rather in a, a rather funny remark, being twisted around as if he's some wild and misogynist. Just as he said it to a man, I thought that was the funniest thing of all. Uh, so you know that that whole movement it, again, it's interesting because it does. You're right that it does have a theoretical basis because obviously one of the things that this cultural Marxism, Marxists who never read Marx, is that they think that words create reality. Um, So, you know, it comes from Lenin and Trotsky and Mao and Gramsci and then all these people who popularised them in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, the Stuart Halls, but also, you said, the postmodernists, you know, Derrida and Foucault and Deleuze Guattari. So it's, it's all about, you know, if you change the ideology, you change the world. And so what words become incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But then that, that's, where, that's where they're kind of... So material... We use these words that we're going to give to you. Yeah, is and the, impose the, them on you. Yeah. But it's a way of, you know, so Marx and Engels wrote this very great polemic against, in the 1840s, against people who thought that at the time, that we called... Yeah, who, who what was it called? It's called the German ideology, okay. and they. You see, if you read Stuart Hall, he only reads the edited version. Yeah, where they <laughs> take out all the bits where they mock people who take this position. They call them the Dalai Lamas. This is not a a compliment in their view, and they actually call this belief that uh, they have this wonderful. They have this wonderful phrase that they, they say these are the people who think that you drown. Because of the idea of gravity, not because water is wet, <laughs> and so it's, it's this. It's, it's it's you know they live in a world of phantoms basically, yeah. And so, not surprising if you go bow to their ghosts, they get really scared because actually they you know again you can see this you know they're intellectuals, they're artists. That's what they do for a living: is produce words, produce images, produce symbols. So if it, it's not surprising they 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 think their own labour process is the most important one. So you know it's a sort of narcissism. Yeah, well, it's a it's a self self confirming ideology. Yeah, yeah, and it's and obviously it's a lot to do you know which is the liberal is that it's all about my own identity. You know, yeah. my me me me. You know, I I I I. It's all about realizing myself. Yeah, and that's the problem because actually, of course, we can't. As in, and that's what neo neoliberalism wants to make it. It's all about the individual competing with every other individual. Yeah, and so you either compete for money or virtue or whatever. Whereas actually, of course, the only way you can change society is operate collectively. Because actually, capitalism, though it all looks like it's individual, is the most collective system ever invented. Because that's what money does. It connects millions and millions of billions of people all together. Look at the world market. That's probably the most, you know, it's a homogenising, collectivising system ever made. But it just ha- it appears as the individual making choices. I choose to have this job. I choose to buy this product. I choose to have this identity or affirm like or whatever. And so that's I think is really interesting that. This is why, as I said, I don't think these so-called cultural Marxists have read any Marx. 
It's interesting, as I said, I, I mean, I know I keep hitting Stuart Hall because he seems to have had a recent revival. But if you read his books, it's interesting. He, he's obviously read less marks than some undergraduates I talk. Uh, you know, it's, all, it's just the basic short text, but he never studied capital, which is, I, you know, I guess how anyone can claim to have any knowledge of the, 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 his writings without actually studying the critique of political economy, which he spent most of his life working on. Because he thought, well, that's actually how capitalist society operates, is, is not through ideology, actually. It's through the, the operations of, of money. And that's really important. It's a very big shift in how we change the way. So, you know, if we're going to change capitalism and evolve beyond it, we have to actually think about how the system really works and not be trapped within its, you know, its, its superficial surface appearance, which is essentially what they are. And it's interesting because they're very uncritical of the very thing they claim to be critical of, which is culture, actually. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, as an old punk, I will make this assertion. The funny thing is that they, I missed all this in Momentum. They actually had a, a Stuart Hall reading group, but it was at 9.30 in the morning. Otherwise, they would have gone on to heckle. And they also had this session called Acid Corbynism. And this friend of mine oh, pointed, that. pointed out that the one thing that was definitely true is none of them had taken any acid. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, I thought said it all, really, that it was just a phrase. It's just a word. Yeah. You know. But to... to uh... And I think I'm a little bit of psychedelic design. A bit like Wired magazine. Mm. Hey, though, there again, actually, though, to be, to be fair to Wired, as human as old hippies, they had taken some acid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can imagine that would be a much more entertaining conference. Uh, well, it wouldn't be as productive. You well, know, I, think, I, mean, I think the importance of the, like, you know, the, the I mean, let's be serious about the late body company. It was an amazing achievement. It really was. It was. Uh, it was genuinely exciting to watch. Uh, and you know, it's, you know, it, you know, think of, you know, the late conference like a few years ago, when sort of like you know, corporate promotion exercises, away days, <laughs> corporate away training days, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and to see it now, I mean, the World Transform was really impressive, actually. I mean, despite having Stuart Hall reading groups. Um, you know, it, it, to see that, that... And in a way, it's good that you have this diversity. You have people from the right, right over to the people on the left, you know. And you have all that diversity of people. And there isn't a party line, so it's not like going to, say, the SWP's so-called Marxism conference, where basically they all spout the party line. There isn't a party line, you know, the party line is argument and debate. And yeah, we're all pro the you know, whatever whatever the Labour left means, but actually it's a very diverse and heterogeneous group of people, mm. including some people who I just actually would say are on the right. Well I think the manifesto is other proof of that because yeah. it's really not that extreme a manifesto. Like there there are like don't get me wrong, there are there are like fairly like left wing yeah, we got broadband broad for all, didn't we? Yeah. But there, and there, and but since then, Jeremy has, embraced, has promoted platform culture. So we now got two clauses of the Digital Democracy Manifesto in yeah. Labour policy. Well, I remember he got slaughtered a few years ago by the press, un, un, unsurprisingly, for talking about um, Internet of Things technology and how he wanted Britain to be really the prolific. Fourth, in the, the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, and he was talking all about that, and it was like some, oh, someone was being like... Okay. Great, great way to win over the working class, there, Jeremy. And I was like, "This is what we need." This is a smart, smart. Well, yeah, yeah, well, well, obviously, you know, people like John McDonald. Yeah, he's read, he's read Marx's capital. He doesn't know what to, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand the critique. 
Yeah, obviously, you know, what's what's happening is yet another you know, recomposition of the working class, another change in the way capitalism operates. And so, on the one hand, you want to go beyond capitalism, setting up cooperatives, you know, maybe doing a basic income or universal basic services, revitalising the NHS in a more democratic way, uh, and these sort of things. But also, in a way, you also need to sort of control the monster. <laughs> You know, because people, you know, if you, because initially you always get you, you have to have a period of transition of some kind, and it's also, I mean, the interesting thing is for now we have a Conservative Party, the managing committee of the bourgeoisie, that seems to be operating what well, it is, it's operating against the interests of our sections of the bourgeoisie by heading straight off the Brexit cliff. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if that's, I don't know how uh, anti the establishment that really is because... Well, there's differences within the establishment. Oh yeah, no, definitely. But I think, personally, I feel a big part of what drove the Conservative Party and UKIP to want out of Europe was tax evasion regulation. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure this is true. This is, I, a lot of people would say this. I reposted it on Facebook yesterday. <laughs> I, I, I we'll have a shameless plug for our article about it. Good, you're right. You have an article about it. We'll put it in the I think it's also it's interesting because I said my mother is in her early 80s, so she remembers the Second World War and is therefore very, very definitely a Remainer. <laughs> she blames the people slightly younger than herself who grew up on all those uh, heroic war movies of Britain standing alone, <laughs> the Dam Busters, Battle of Britain, you know, the longest day type things, and the Alliance with America, actually. Wow. Uh, I don't this is... And I think that's an interesting way of thinking, you know, that they grew up in that period where Britain still had an empire, it was just losing an empire, mm. and it's a sort of nostalgia for a sort of imaginary 1950s. And I can see that from, you know, it's, it's interesting how the... I don't know if that accounts for 17 million, though. No, it doesn't count, but she's talking about a certain group of people who she's familiar with. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting how it was, a, it is the age, the, the age split in the vote is really interesting. I mean, it's, you know, the, you know it was two-thirds of Tory voters voted for what is, you know, a, a very radical change in the country's position, you know. I mean, I don't think they were aware of what that radical the change was that they, that they were voting for. But that's why I find quite interesting that whether you could have such a radical change when your foot soldiers are in their 70s and 80s is another thing. Mm. You know, normally you need to have lots of young, fit males to yeah. do that sort of radical change. But I it's guess a, it was a vote for what I like to call Schrodinger's Brexit. Yeah, I mean, there was. Uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah, there's, as I said, there's obviously different types of visions. I mean, there was uh, there's still this sort of hangover of the Tony B- uh, Ben anti common market view that you know we should become Cuba with worse weather. You know, the, you know, the, the, you know, you know, that the the EU is a symbol of you know neoliberal globalization. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because they, well, the EU is not perfect. Uh, no way. It's interesting, I went canvassing during, uh, for another Europe is Possible, which is basically the official Labour poli- policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we got much traction in the mainstream media. For it. And, I, and I remember this guy saying to me on the doorstep, he's saying, basically, the EU is shit, but Brexit is much worse. I'll never vote Bre- for Leave because it's supported by Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. <laughs> And, I mean, most of the people I was handing these leaflets out in my state, I didn't like the EU very much, but they just thought the alternative was much worse. And I think that, you know, that's the problem, is, it is, is the real criticisms of the EU. 
have all been lost in this. You have to take a for or against position. When again, this is interesting if you think about referendums about the polarisation into two choices. Mm-hmm. It excluded the other choice, which is let's try it, try and uh, make a different another Europe, basically. Yeah. And that, well, to that, be fair to David Cameron, not normally a huge fan. The pig, the pig fence, the pig, but he uh, he did get some reasonable concessions out of Europe. What were they? Oh, you know, there, there was a little bit more sort of flexibility on future treaties. There was going to be there was but just. He, but he's usually he's usually opt out of, uh, of things which are helping the environment and work. They want to opt out or tax evasion. Well, yeah. yeah, not not um, not you know enforced marketisation or privatisation. It's interesting what they wanted to change. So I think. I think, you know, it's, but the, the difficulty is, and I think this comes back to the digital democracy debate, is if you want to have mass participation in politics, now having a, a yes-no referendum is, 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 a, is a very difficult way to do it, unless you have repeated referendum. I mean, you know, it's interesting, I have a, I have a, I've taught over the years many times, and I've known Swiss people, and they have repeated referendums. All the time. Yeah, and so that seems to work because... Yes, you're consulting the people, but not just on one-offs. You know, you, have, you consult them and you consult them and you consult them and you consult them. Yeah, it's not like when you got that Brexit vote, like, this is our one chance. Yeah, yeah, so really there ought to be an annual Brexit vote. So that should be on there. <laughs> well, you know, but that's essentially what... We're ending up with annual election. The, the, the levellers in, like, 1647 demanded annual election, and we've almost got that. They demanded universal male suffrage, which took from 1918, from 1647 to 1918 division. We still haven't got annual elections, but we seem to be getting closer. We've had mm-hmm. a general election, a referendum, now a general election. If you're from Northern Ireland, we pretty much do you have annual elections. And <laughs> we don't have a government. Well, no, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, so it so doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting about that, about whether if you're going to have some more participatory democracy... Well, you know that, it, that just having one offs doesn't really work. It should be a, it should be not just an event. It should be a process mm-hmm. where people are being educated, going through the argument, and then it would allow a wider group of possibilities. Because that I said that was my biggest complaint about the referendum is is that it, it excluded other solutions. It was either you have to think the EU was wonderful, basically, or it was, you know, let's get out. And, and to me, not, I don't agree with either of those positions. No. I personally, well, I voted Remain. I'm, I was like the perfect, so if you had like a breakdown from the UK yeah. of the most likely demographic to yeah. vote Remain, it was someone from Northern Ireland who was university educated and was a Green Party voter. And that, that's led to that. Or a Sinn Fein voter. That's <laughs> great. The Shinners, who, who absolutely were <coughs> historically always against the EU, have now become the most pro EU party in Ireland, which, is, which for not for very good reasons, you know. I think they're core constituency, definitely. Though I was told by a friend of mine from Northern Ireland that the, the, the boys, the boys, uh, are, all th- are all rubbing their hands and they thought that the smuggling might come back. They don't really want to go back to the armed struggle, but smuggling definitely be <laughs> a good idea. So I, am, I, am, I don't know. I think I, I, I think that's really. I think it's really interesting though, if you think about about the way that the, the debate is being framed. It's in a way saved the EU from the criticism it should, mm-hmm. it should have. Because 
the alternative is so much worse. And it at, the, at the Labour Party conference, apart from the, the obvious red flag, there were two flags really obviously being banded and flown and waved, which is one, the, the Palestinian flag, obviously. I mean, after the Israeli embassy you know, weaponised this whole anti-Semitism smear, not surprising people or something, convinced people that he should have become as pro-Palestinian as possible. And the second was the EU flag. And it wasn't just right-wing, you know, the sort of Blairite rump, but there was a demo, actually, pro-EU demo when I was there. But it was interesting, the, the momentum events, there were lots of little, you know, people wearing EU badges. And so they've actually, now the greatest achievement the Brexiteers is to make the EU popular in England, <laughs> which is an amazing achievement. You know, in Ireland, you can tell why people are in favour of the EU, because you know it, it gave money, yes, <laughs> money, obviously, but also it, 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 it's a way of asserting their autonomy from the, the old colonial master. You know, it gives them a they're not totally you know, they've got political independence but not an economic independence, mm-hmm. so yeah, and those subsidies do help with that. Um, but it's right. every time a bus pulls up in Belfast, it's like paid for by the European Commission. Yeah, I'm just like, no, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, of course, yeah, it's, a, it's still a diesel bus, though, isn't it? Wow. Uh, but um, it's interesting. But you know, you think it's interesting that they've actually made the EU pop- popular in England. Well, I mean, one day they might even fly EU flags from British public buildings. <laughs> really, that would be a strange turn up. I guess. I guess if you was it Frankie Ball said three hard winters. And England would have a remain a majority, which is one of these rather evil jokes. Uh, I think it's a lot less than three. Um, because <laughs> it, cause I, that's, I think that is a stri- striking thing, is the demographic. You know, it's obviously there's a sort of north-south thing in England as well, because those people who obviously are more cl- closely connected with the continent and more likely to, mm. you know, a lot less likely to have suffered from, you know, well-paid manufacturing jobs being shipped out to Eastern Europe, and contract labour is being brought in on short-term, mm. you know, short-term contracts to undermine local paying conditions. Yeah, there's some very real reasons why people didn't like the EU. Oh yeah, uh, no, there's there's there is yeah. a whole host of reasons to be legitimately uh, critical yeah, of it. Leave, uh, but that, but you know, it, what is most striking is the age difference. The age difference. How do you explain that? Because because I honestly like it, I understand to an extent, but the the referendum plus that general election result, just the 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 fact it's become so age indicating as to who you're going to vote for is. It, I've never happened like that in my lifetime. I mean, there's always been you know, younger people who you know, are more likely to vote Labour. Yeah, I, I but, think but, but it's 2015 never... was right. So if you looked at like young people, the Conservatives had about 30% of the vote to yeah. about 36 or so for Labour. So there was little to choose from, from like 18 to 30. And, and certainly in 2010, the Lib Dems, who were essentially a Conservative party, had a huge vote. Partly because they were mistakenly seen as left of centre. Yeah. You know, because they were, well, were a lot of issues. Well, anti tuition fees, anti foreign intervention, but they were, you know, they, they, the, 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 the clue is in the name, liberal. <laughs> well, I think the Lib, oh, the Lib Dems get a bad rap. I feel like we, uh, we maybe don't appreciate how much they held back in five years. No, 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 no. I, I <laughs> no this is where I completely disagree with you. Uh, you know, this is the point about doing these uh, war games. We did, we, we played a game. Which, on the same sort of method that we did role playing of the coalition building and if you gained it you knew how strong the position that the Dems had and they didn't gain it 
So they had. Do you think they, do you think they, they had, negotiated poorly, or do you think they just didn't realise the position they were in? Or yeah, just... because they didn't game it. They never gave it. They never gave what would happen if there was a coalition government. So they so they went into it with a civil service that was organising negotiations that had gamed it. So they you know they 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 railroaded them into becoming the junior partner in the Tories and passing all the horrible austerity mm-hmm. stuff that people are suffering from now. You know, and so it seems to me that. You know, and whereas the DUP, which has had lots of experience of getting the maximum amount of coalition agreement, it is amazing how much you know how where well they're in a similar position. Look at the, look at how much better they done. For a start, they didn't need to go. You know, they, they, I think the Lib Dems were so desperate to become ministers, and the, and the civil service. They just got a whiff of it and they, you know, signed their life away. Signed the party away. Though, of course, you know, if the Tory party does collapse and they have to make a new bourgeois party, the Lib Dems are obviously in a very strong position there. Do you, this this will be our last question, but, so, actually I've got two questions. First of all, how do you think that digital democracy, how, to what extent do you think that can be a part of the way that a government works in that we saw how susceptible people are to misinformation and to fake news, if you want to use that term. How, how much do you think people can be relied upon to be a part of the policy making process and then sort of tagged on and not related do you well, think okay. the I mean, you know, that, you know, if you look at political theory since Aristotle and Plato it's all uh, right up to today it's all a fear of the, 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 the mob you know the mob will be swayed by demagogues and, uh, well I don't think it's uh, completely unfounded fear isn't it? I mean, well, you kind of have to. You only have to look at the American situation. While I wasn't a big Clinton fan in any way, shape, or form, I, I Trump is a is a, a terrifying, terrifying occupant she, of the office. Who she's terrifying. Well, she's terrifying as well. But what you would have got from Clinton was is it? not like an utter degradation of yeah. all political norms. Yeah, but she would have invaded Syria to save Al Qaeda. I mean, that's that's that's, that's it. That's what does Trump do in bombing Syria, war well, troops in yeah, Afghanistan? Yeah, I don't know. He didn't invade Syria, you know, like a full scale military. Wow. I, I know. I mean, I know people in America who didn't vote in the presidential election because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Clinton. I'd have probably written Sanders in. Yeah, yeah. Or just written, or no, voted for some Jill Stein or, or, or something. Gary any, Johnson. Any, anyone, any, any, anyone but those two. I mean, uh, I I would find it very, very difficult to vote for Clinton because her track record, you know, Honduras, Haiti, Libya, Syria, Ukraine. I mean, that's even before you think of all the corruption yeah. that she's involved with that family. Um, is uh, you know that she's taking money from the Saudis. You know, they, I mean, they I really are. The uh, they really are. I mean, she. They, you know, they get, so Trump is horrible and she's horrible. So you know what? It's there's sometimes when the lesser evil choice comes to, they're just both both so evil you can't face them. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example about the failure of representative democracy when people feel like they have no choice, mm-hmm. and then they will do. You know, that's when charlatans like Trump can come to power. Because you know, if they you know, they're offered Clinton, they'll go, All right, okay, I'll vote for Clinton then or not vote at all. <laughs> so one of the reasons to be interested in digital democracy is actually to make to make democracy be actually democracy. Because at the moment we've got a system where you elect representatives and that is democracy. Now the ancient Greeks wouldn't think that's democracy, they think that's oligarchy. <laughs> Elections are the way you pick oligarchs. Yeah? Um 
And so one of the reasons to deepen participation is actually so people can participate in the process. Uh, but it has to be a reiterative process. It has to be reiterative. You see, these things, I mean, that's, again, it comes back to our early discussion, is in a way what you want to do is have a continually voting process. So you're taking decisions, checking them, improving them. I mean, that's what you do in the digital world anyway. You don't just produce a piece of software and say, Yes, no. Oh, yeah. You just continually up, 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 and in a way, yeah. that's what democracy has to become more like. You know, this is this is how, how you know it's not a product; it's a process. So it's almost more incremental. Well, yeah, I think exactly, and that means that yes, it's important. So I think representative democracy. I mean, like, you have to understand. I'm an old punk and was really into situationism, and in a way, you know, the workers' council will replace parliamentary democracy. All this sort of stuff. Um, certainly by the early 1980s I didn't believe that but I do think that the critique of this that, that you know you have one election every five years and then in between that you just obey the government you know this is this is a real problem I think because it alienates people from the political process it means that you know it tends to mean all the political class converge I mean I was talking about this Jonathan Powell new Machiavelli book and by the end he's saying isn't it great there's no difference between the Blairites and Cameron's Tories well, I think, yes, there is a... That is, that is the biggest critique of the whole Blair government. You ended up where there was no difference. Mm. You know, there's no really discernible difference between... Because it's all neoliberal economics and foreign interventionism and marketising the state. And that's not, that's not a difference. That's, you know, you're just football teams, not political parties. And certainly not class parties. You different coloured ties. Yeah, but, you know, what, you know, the Labour Party, as the name suggests, is a class party. Not some you know, vehicle to get bureaucrats better jobs and large pensions. <laughs> um, so this, it's, so it seems to me that the purpose is to actually, you know, to use again these old analogy. You know, it's not the rule of the few; it's the rule of the many. And you actually have got to use this to actually get the many involved in politics, but also to get them involved in a continual process. Because you know, something like Brexit is a good example where. People would take, make it, have a one-off choice between two bad choices in a way, uh, and the information wasn't very good, so they were provided. And, and certainly, I, my feeling was during the referendum campaign, what the Labour leadership was saying was completely excluded from the airways. Jeremy did 140 meetings, but they were hardly covered because he wasn't saying what the the Remain campaign wanted them mm-hmm. to say. Well, the myth was they didn't really campaign. Well, they, yeah, they were preparing the, the chicken coup, so I think that was also part of why they kept him off the airwaves and slightly conspiratorial about it. But I'm sure the Blair... Well, that didn't go very well for them. No, that... that <laughs> well, I think they... Yes, exactly. I think the fact that Brexit actually happened, the vote they won... I think they thought that Remain were going to just win, and I must admit, I would have... Again, if I had to pay money, I would have thought they would have won by a very small majority. Mm-hmm. Um well, that was. I went to bed and they were up, yeah, by yeah. a couple of percent. And I was like, "Oh, it'll be fine. No need to worry." And then I woke up and, well, because <laughs> all those nice Tory people, old people, voted for radical change, right? Where you think they're called, you know, they're supportive of a conservative party. And when push came to shove, I must admit, I thought they would be more conservative. But as it, in a way, we didn't. I think a lot of people again because they don't know enough Tories didn't realise that it was seen as the conservative choice, that actually Europe is seen as this nation-building project, yeah? 
And again, I think that's the young old thing. I mean, the younger people don't really have any great difficulty in saying, I know I'm a Londoner, I'm English, I'm British, I'm European. But obviously, for an older generation, that's quite a difficult thing to do. I mean, Boris Johnson wrote this article in The Telegraph, and it was really interesting. He was freaked out about young people painting their Facebook and putting 12 gold stars on it. Well, again, you know, if you go to Ireland, people can be very patriotically Irish and pro-European. In fact, being pro-European is being patriotically Irish to preserve Ireland from the Brits, if nothing else. Um, and it's not just money, actually. I mean, money helps, but it's not just money. Uh, and I think that's the interesting about about that sort of multiple identities, to go back to another earlier discussion, is that people find it much easier, I think, the younger generation. And also they've got access to, you know, a different sources of information. They're more likely to travel to Europe, uh, around Europe. Uh, they're more likely to have had relationships with Europeans. They're more likely to have, a, have a, a, a parent who comes from elsewhere in Europe as well. So their whole experience has been different, you know. So you think somebody in their seventies or eighties, or lives out in the, you know, in in, in this sort of small, you know, it's often it's a small town versus big city as well, though. So they're you know, less likely to have gone as done as much travelling. Yeah. So that's the and again, you know, you think if you grow up, if you spend your entire time watching BBC news and reading the mail you're going to have a very weird view of the world. <laughs> and it's not surprising there. I think maybe... that, that literally just explains my mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've managed to convince her to not read the mail anymore. But yeah. Well, even people I know read The Guardian have a very weird view of the world. I mean, I spent a lot of my life reading The Guardian. Uh, I gave up over their terrible foreign coverage and their monstering of Jeremy. Yeah, well, that, but, that but, really starved my opinion of them. But it, but that has a very strange view of the world. So any of these media... But it, I think, as I said, I think one of the interesting is the younger generation have... They've grown up in this in this world where they have many more diverse sources of information and they're not necessarily any more reliable. I mean, the idea that somehow fake news has only arrived in the last few years is laughable. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the tabloid press in this country have been the biggest purveyors of fake news ever, you know. Just one. And the Hillsborough. B- Hillsborough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, and BBC News is fake news. You know, all news is fake in a way because it's, it's, a, it's a construction of human beings and they take reality and turn it into a spectacle, as Guy Debord would call it. CNN's political theatre. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So... It's, it's all you know, but it, it, I think so. That I think that is a key. A key to, so if we're going to have digital democracy, it needs to be a continual process, and it needs to be something you start, say, in the Labour Party, and try and get our members and trade unionists involved in in discussion. And it's not a substitute for meetings and voting and representative, but it's something to widen it out. I mean, a good example is I know we're talking about you know asking people from I don't know, the National Health Service like your mother to get involved in how the National Health Service should be run and organised. Well, she's probably very busy. She might have small children. She might have people with disability, or she has a disability. So going to meetings is difficult. But if you could give her, you know, put an app so when she's on the bus, she can sit and input her ideas or say whether things could or bad, that would be really good, because then you allow people different levels of engagement. Some people will get really, really involved in writing multi-page <laughs> documents or go to lots of meetings, being very vocal. Other people 
people will just want to say yes, no, or have an interest in comments, be able to feedback certain specialised bits to it. And it's to be able to have that levels of engagement from very, very close involvement to maybe much less engagement. But that's because often, as I said, they've got very other other things in their lives to do. But there's, you know, there's this, there's, you know, Benjamin Constant, who's this French liberal in the early 19th century, said, well, the difference, you know, the great thing about representative democracy is most people don't want to be involved in politics. But actually, that's not true. I think most people would be involved in politics. They just think most politics, as it's presented to them, isn't to do with them. They're told they're not allowed to participate, or it's constructed in such a way it's really boring. So if you actually try to make it engage people in politics and encourage them to learn and to to participate, they will. And they've got yeah. something to say. You know, so you should tell people that, you know, everything that they... Almost every aspect of your life is like, well, the way that's going to play out or the way that's going to be structured is the, the people you vote for. Yeah. But, um, yeah, on that note, shall we uh, shall we wrap up? Yeah, good. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for, for, for coming on the show. And, and, uh, um, to us. and, and hello to Belfast, a wonderful city. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. Richard was a really interesting person to talk to, and I hope you got some insightful things out of listening. Later in the week, we have an interview with Francesca Lake from Future Science Group, and next week we've got interviews with people from Red Pepper, The Socialist Magazine, and with Harry Baker, the Islam poet. So be sure to subscribe if you want to get those. Until next time, thanks very much.